0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A glorious and magnificent Father, we give you thanks and praise that you deal with us not according to our sin and our folly, but according to your grace and your mercy, that you have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to what you have promised in your word. Teach us, Lord, the good judgment and knowledge as we seek to be able to believe and rest in your promises you present to us in your word. Lord, as we often go astray, wandering each to everyone's own way, Lord, we pray that you would help us, guide us through your spirit, change our hearts that we might be able to see our sin and our folly, but also run to the cross. Lord, that we would no longer be lost, but we would seek to be able to understand and follow the Good Shepherd. Lord, you are good, and you do good. Teach us according to your goodness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 to 4, verse 1. This is God's holy and errant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call Of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Road trips are never fun, particularly road trips with young children. You spend time and time again going over your list, packing and planning, loading up the car, going back and forth, making sure you have everything. You finally get the children out the door without ruining everything, putting them in the car seat, spending all this time and energy. You pull out of the driveway And almost one of the immediate questions they are asked is either, I'm hungry, where are the snacks, or more, are we there yet? They have no idea where we're going. They have no idea or concept of time. They can't fathom that we are still moving, and yet we have not stopped. My answer generally is you can get out anytime you want. Or, when we stop, that is when we are there. And so too, the image of the Bible is presented before us of the great Christian walk, the great Christian journey. Often these images are given of this in-between time. The farmer sowing and awaiting the crop to be able to grow. Or the seed planted that is growing to be able to produce fruit. The runner running the race to be able to complete the race. The soldier fighting in the midst of the battle to be able to win the battle. And these images help us to be able to understand the Christian life. But sadly, I think many people don't live in this Christian life in the middle of this truth of where they have been and where they are going. Often I think Christians treat salvation as in in the midst of exodus they're finally saved from slavery but yet they're just standing on the border outside of egypt sometimes longing to go back into egypt not fathoming fathoming what christ or what god has done for them and they're singing free at last free at last thank god i'm free at last but yet they're not home they're not onward to be able to move towards that end goal they're happy just Making their house in the desert. To be able to dwell in that sense of freedom without understanding any form of movement or goal or anything like that. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is, is starting to explain his great resume of that of his life, born of a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless to the law, righteousness which he had somewhat attained. And he says, all of that is for nothing. All of that is just rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And now he continues to be able to explain what this means, to be able to know Christ, to live in this state of not yet knowing Christ in all of his fullness. This is one of these great passages that shows the paradox of the Christian life. There are many paradoxes which we see. That we are simultaneously a saint and yet a sinner. We are simultaneously the new man and yet the old man dwelling together. And we need to understand and fathom that sometimes the most honest realities need to be spoken. That we need to know what a state we are in. No good comes from thinking of ourselves in a way that we are not. There's no good thinking of yourself, you are healthy, when indeed you are sick. And the Bible speaks truth. Sometimes it's hard truth to be able to wrap our heads around us. But there's no good in having a false security that comes from false understanding. And the Bible teaches us exactly where we are how we are to live, what we are to do. Many people, I think, either go on one of two extremes, evangelicals or others, they they have this false sense of hope where they put all their hope in the grace of God. And what they do is they have a false sense of this grace of God where they merely just talk in broad, general terms that God is love and therefore... They don't understand the depths and depravity of their sin. They don't truly run to Christ because they do not seek that they need Christ to begin with. They look truly only at justification. And don't then go to be able to search Scriptures to be able to understand how justification affects our life and sanctification. Or to go to the other extremes, what they do is they more fundamental backgrounds and they think that they're to keep the law, to uphold the law, and they put their faith and their trust in in somewhat of the sanctification, thinking this is what is going to save them. If they only live a certain way or add laws and rules to be able to protect them so that they might not sin, they don't truly understand the depths of justification in what Christ has done. Sinclair Ferguson in his excellent book The Whole Christ explains that these two things legalism licentiousness are both of the same children of the same womb. That both of them misunderstand and do not apply the works and the word of Christ. Their relationship to the law. They either throw it out completely and say it doesn't matter or they add to it. But in they don't understand that it is the truth that it lies therein. This is what exactly Satan did in, in the garden. He denies God's word and says that God doesn't know what he's talking about. You will certainly not die. Or he seeks to be able to add and protect all these rules to it. You shall not eat of it or touch it as Eve says. And Paul shows last time that it's not that he had, didn't have a relationship to law, not a relationship to the promises that God had given, but he did not understand those relationships. He had the wrong type of relationship where he thought through the flesh he could attain all of this righteousness and holiness. He saw the law as something to be kept and perfected, that he was blameless. But Paul continues to explain what a state we are truly in as believers. Those who are seeking to be able to know Christ. These vital truths that we need to be able to know and be reminded. The first thing that he explains to us is that Paul has not made it yet. He has not made it. You see this clearly in verse 12 where he says, not that I have already obtained this or already perfect. What hasn't Paul attained? Well, you go back in, in the chapter to be able to see in verses 8 to 11 that he counts all of that resume, that rubbish resume, of this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That he might be able to be found in him, be able to gain Christ, his righteousness, know his fellowship and his suffering and and his resurrections. His resurrection. That he might be able to obtain this. What is that he has not obtained? He has not known Christ in knowing Christ. Now, this is a truth that should comfort us. That here Paul the great theologian who has written the glorious chapters that give us comfort in our life. He says he does not know Christ to all of its fullness and his extent. The great theologian who wrote in Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for all things Him were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, he is, in him all things hold together, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, from the firstborn all the end, and everything he might be preeminent, for in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And he says that I do not know Christ to the fullness and the extent. I haven't obtained this. Knowing Christ. There is more of Christ that I seek to be able to know and understand and fathom. He is still yet to be able to grow. And Paul, we would say, what a giant of faith he is. And he says, I haven't known Christ to his extent. You feel this, not only about Paul. I mean, you feel like ants in comparison to many giants of the faith. You read John Calvin and and he writes the Institutes at age 26 and here we are, maybe painting a finger painting, that we don't know the extent of who Christ is. And Paul says he's not there. He seeks to be able to know more, the fire that fuels his belly. That's what it is with a relationship. It seeks to be able to grow. You asked me on the day of my wedding, do I know Sarah? Of course. I know her. But you ask me now, do you know her? Yeah, I know her better than I did before. A little relationship grows over time, and Christians seek to be able to know who Christ is. And there is no mining that depth of who Christ is in His person, His nature, His attributes and what He has done and accomplished for us. We know the depths of our sin and we find out that He has paid all of them. The deeper we go down in the depravity of our souls, the more we realize He has paid for it all through His mercy and love. Not only Paul says that he hasn't obtained this of knowing Christ, but he also has not obtained this in his perfection. He says that quite clearly that I have not already obtained this, or I am already perfect. Now, some lines of theological thought called perfectionism says there's, there's a point in a Christian's life where their love for Christ and their desires through the work of the Spirit can reach a point where they no longer deliberately sin. They're not saying they never sin. But what they say is they reach a point where their heart is so in tune with God's law and love that they don't deliberately sin. And this is what we should seek to be able to live out. Now, a part of this is trying to understand that they're trying to live a life of piety called to the Christian walk and life, but what they do is they convolute what this is. A. A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge, gives a great example that a great deal of perfectionism is rotten to the core. All self-consciousness is the very essence and nature of sin. And again, true confidence leads necessarily to strong desires of more knowledge, of more holiness, of unceasing advances of grace, that it is rotten to the core because what you do is you say, I don't need Christ. I don't understand the depths of my sin. But as Paul continues to walk his Christian life, I'm sure he realizes that that long list of sins forever gets longer. As he thinks of all the people he imprisoned, the deaths that he had seen, but yet even in his daily walk, yet he still understands that he is not there yet. That we have great comfort as we look to Paul, and Paul says that he is not there yet. He is not perfect. The man who we look to as we seek, he says that he's content in prison. He seeks to be faithful in persecution, bold in preaching, continuing in prayer in all things, giving glory to God in all things, and yet he says he has not reached it yet. And he says, I have a way to go. But it's one thing to be able to be able to know and acknowledge you are lost. But Paul doesn't merely just say that we are lost. The, the Christian message is not merely we are lost and broken, but we have hope. There's something yet we have not yet obtained. You are still lost if you do not know where you are and you do not know where you are going. We're happy to say we're lost. We're happy to say we're broken or wandering. But the truth is that we are not lost when we know we are going. And that's the second thing that Paul spells out for us here in this passage. That he has to keep going. Not merely to say that he has not obtained it, but he has to keep going. You see this in verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He says here that he forgets. He's forgetting. Our one thing we might be able to say we do very well. Here he says that he's forgetting. A command which we can get behind, go home and rejoice. Finally, a great accomplishment in the Bible that we do not need to be able to grow or develop in. But it's not merely that he's forgetful. He forgets deliberately one thing, what lies behind, the past. This long list of sins in which he boasted of, this rubbish resume in which he boasted and once held his hope and salvation in. He says, I forget all of that. For the purpose to be able to advance, to go forward, to be able to strain ahead deliberately forgetting what is behind and deliberately straining moving forward. this word here of straining to advance, to go forward, is an image we don't often think about in the Christian life. Again, we, we rest and receive in Christ and His righteousness and His works. We don't necessarily think, reformers don't like the word works. We avoid it. We don't want to sound like that of which we left. But here Paul says that we strain, we stretch out, we shake off, we fervently fight, we vigorously, earnestly desire to move forward. When Jesus called Peter, he says that I call you to be a fisher of men. Now, I'm not a fisherman, nor the son of a fisherman, but when I go fishing, or if, if you could even call it that, throwing a string into a piece of water, it's not very vigorous. It's not, very, uh, not much hard work. Actually, we think of it as something of a relaxing hobby. But yet when Jesus says to Peter, I'm calling you to be a fisher of men, this is hard work in which he has worked and labored sweat. Again, we're not saying that you earn your salvation. The paradox of the Christian faith is as you rest and receive in Christ, it drives you forward to be able to become more like Christ. Straining forward, as Paul spells out again in Philippians chapter 2, that as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. And Paul says that he has not made it, but he is continually seeking to be able to move forward. He seeks to be able to go forward, keep going. But also the third thing that he says and teaches us in this passage is that he has a finish or a goal. See this in verse 14, that I press on. Not merely that he is forward moving in any direction, thinking that he's lost, and then wherever I go is any accomplishment. There is a behind and there is a forward, and the forward is going in a specific direction. He says in verse 4 that I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He'll explain it later that we're not merely just citizens of this earth, but we are citizens of heaven. That is where we are seeking to be able to go. Peter explains in 1 Peter chapter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God's call has a purpose, a goal in mind. His eternal glory in Christ. We're in Romans chapter 8. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. Who are called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? We see that end goal at the end of verse 30. But He gets there eventually, Paul says, for those whom He foreknew He predestined to be conformed in the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The goal and the purpose of all of this is the end of glorification. This upward goal, this upward mark in which we are seeking to be able to attain. The Christian and pilgrim's progress is heading to a destination, a place. He's not merely just aimlessly wandering. Occasionally he might leave the king's highway. He might get distracted or confused or find a place in which he finds rest and seeks to be able to stay. But he forever is moving in a direction. There are certain goals he's seeking to be able to go. The narrow gate, the cross, that he might be able to get that part of his destination. But ultimately he's driving that he might be able to go all the way to the celestial city. And here Paul says that he is on the move and heading towards a certain goal and place, that calling in which he had been called, that eternal weight of glory found in Christ Jesus. And we're blessed because we don't merely just have the book of Philippians in which Paul spells this out. He, at the end of his life, he writes a letter to his dear spiritual son, Timothy, and he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, He's ready to be poured out as a drink offering. And the time of his departure had come. And he says in verse 7 that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord on the righteous judge will award to me on that day. We know how he finishes because he says that he's fought to the end. He ran to the end. He kept the faith until the end. And so Paul here speaks of, of where he, he was in his life, what he seeks not to be able to do, that he hasn't yet made it, that he continues to move forward, that he has a goal and a prize in his mind. But he doesn't merely just leave it as speaking of himself. He really asks the question of you, where are you going? What are you doing? You see this in verses 15 to 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He says in verse 12, his desire in all of this, is to make it his own. That he understands where he is at. He says after, in Second Timothy chapter 4, where he's speaking of that crown which is awarded to him by the righteous judge, he then finishes and says, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. That we are to be able to make this Our own. This one thing that Paul does and says in this chapter to be able to know Christ, know Christ in his fullness, in all of his glory. Is this our goal? Is this our prize? Do we seek to be able to strive forward to be able to obtain it? Running that race, fighting that fight, growing that seed. Do we know that we're not there yet? But not merely do we understand that we cannot and do not have not attained it, but do we seek to be able to strive forward, to be able to move? Do we have that drive to be able to keep going? Do we have the finish line in sight? But there's glorious comfort also in this passage as well, that we are not left alone. Paul says that he seeks to be able to make it his own. Why does he seek to be able to make it his own? He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. As the Heidelberg Catechism famously starts, what is our comfort in life and death? That we are not our own. That we are bought with a price and belong both body and soul to our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't merely just strive aimlessly, he's trying to be able to obtain it by himself. He says he's tried that once and it didn't work. He tried to keep the law and he did perfectly, but it was nothing. It was rubbish with a surpassing worth of trying to understand the knowledge of Christ. Why does this happen? How does important word in this passage because? Why does He try to be able to make it His own? Because Christ has made me His own. The Christ merely did not do this to die on the cross, but He sent the Helper to be able to come. Apply these truths to our lives, as He says in John chapter 14. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Or in John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. You want to say, how do I know Christ? How do I grow in the fullness? Well, God has sent the Spirit to be able to help us to know Him more fully. To be able to seek, to be able to understand who He is. 1st Paul writes in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We need to understand that Paul is not merely just applying the same method which he's talking about, that he counts on his rubbish resume and says, This is, I'm just applying the same method in a different way. He's saying it's a whole new method. That the Spirit who fills him helps him to be able to understand and mind the depths of who Christ truly is. What do you want? More Christ more Jesus, more knowledge of who He is. This is His large exhortation. The problem in the church in Philippi is not that these two sisters are in disagreement. These two sisters are focusing not on Christ. He says, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look to Christ for your humility. Look to Christ for His exaltation." Charles Spurgeon famously says, the more you know about Christ, the less you will be satisfied with superficial views of Him. Know Him, find Him, search for Him. There's a hymn that speaks of how we are to know Christ, and it is more about Jesus would I know. More of His grace to others show more of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn. More of his holy will discern. Spirit of God be teacher, my teacher be. Showing the things of Christ to me. More about Jesus in his word. Holding communion with my Lord. Hearing his voice of every line. Making each faithful saying mine. More about Jesus on his throne. Riches in glory all his own. More of his kingdoms sure increase. More of his coming Prince of Peace. Let us seek to be able to find out more and more and more to mine those depths of Christ as we seek to be able to know him, that we understand. That we count everything else as loss. To be able to understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O oh, gracious and most merciful Father, forgive us when we have sought to be able to find security in what we have done, when we have sought to be able to look to your law and have a wrong relationship to your law, either removing your word or adding to it, but help us, Lord, to be able to seek, to be able to mine the depths and wisdom and knowledge of who you are of Your grace and Your mercy. Help us to be able to fix our eyes on that goal and prize. To be able to understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as our Lord. Help us in all of this, for we know we need Your help. Fill us with Your Spirit as we seek to be able to understand who You are. Help us as we walk in this way, knowing we're not there yet. As we keep on striving towards that end and goal of knowing Christ, pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at SevenSpringsPresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. For His glory and His gospel.